are talking about how we get these thoughts in God's minds, right, to the thoughts in our minds, so that it might lead to changes in our lives. And last week, we spent our time talking up here about human authors' minds, how did God get the word into their minds, and how did they then write these manuscripts of the Bible. And so we focused our attention on this key doctrine of inspiration. Can anybody tell us what inspiration is, or how did we define inspiration? It's okay if you cheat in your notes. Okay, so it should have been expiration, because it's really more about the fact that it came from God than it is what the authors did, right? So it should be expiration. That's right. Anybody give me any more about that? So the so inspiration. Can you tell me the passage of scripture from which we build, or one or two of the passages of scripture from which we get the doctrine of inspiration? Okay, so we have Seven Timothy three sixteen. This is one of the key passages. All scripture is God-breathed, is what it says in the newer versions, like the NIV or some of the others. The word God-breathed in many of the older translations, such as the NIV, actually says aspired. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. God-breathed, it literally means breathed out, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Okay, so that, that gives us the underlying concept. What was the imagery or the, the biblical analogy that we drew out of Second Peter, as it, as it were, on helping us get a mental picture of what this inspiration process was like? Anybody remember that? The boat and the storm. Okay, we, when we studied the Greek word, Peter uses they were carried along. You saw it's the same Greek word that Luke uses when he was describing a ship in a storm. And so it gives us this concept of how the authors were kind of moved. Okay, As a storm moves a ship, so the Holy Spirit moved the authors to write what he wanted them to write. And so inspiration is really the act of the Holy Spirit enabling the writers to write what he wanted them to write so that we could be preserved for us. The, the underlying idea is that this is a divine product. Okay, The Bible is a divine product. It's the breath of God, and it's what he wanted revealed to us. And so we, from that then, we have our original manuscripts. So... The question we wanted to look at tonight is this concept of canonicity. How did people collect the books to give us the 66 books we have? And what was the process that they went through? And we're going to see that 
All right, so we're getting the original manuscripts, which then are collected into 66 books. Next, we'll look at the transmission. How did those original autographs then get copied so that we can have our English Bible? Okay, so let's, let's take our night tonight to look at this concept of canonicity. And we looked at this briefly last week because we had a little extra time on our hands. Again, we often, we hear this funny word, canon, and our mind immediately goes to a weapon of war. But we said it wasn't that, it was what? What does it mean? What is a canon? This is a word we really don't use much in this capacity, although it was one, at one point in time it was used a lot. Anybody know what a canon means? Yeah, so a collection, it's kind of a standard, okay, so one, one thing we could think of is like a ruler, it's, it's a rule or a standard, and so the canon, when we talk about the canon of scripture, it's the collection um, of, of, of books that define the rule or the standard. And so the early church was faced with a little bit of a decision. There were people writing books, and then they needed to decide what books they believed were a divine product given by the inspiration of God and what books weren't. And so put yourself into their, into their shoes, okay? We talked about this a little bit last week, but we'll see if you can remember. Put yourself into their place. You now are in the first century. You're an early, you're part of the early church. You're a believer in Jesus. What criteria would you use if you were asked to be involved in determining the, canic, the canonical status or whether a book should be included in Scripture? Or what would you and your fellow believers be talking about? You know, if, if somebody came to your local church, what would be the criteria you might use to validate whether that person was speaking an authoritative message or, or something to those effects? So those are two very good criteria. One, is there a consistent message? And two, do these people have some level of authority in subject matter, right? So were they with Jesus? Did they see Jesus? Did they know Jesus? Were they with somebody who was with Jesus? Okay. Anybody else have any thoughts? if you had a work and it contradicted established uh, you know, the Old Testament if it contradicted that in some way it would be a problem yeah right 
Anything that would contradict would be a problem. So there's got to be a consistency of message. And I think what we'll realize, you know, we, we've seen in, in recent years with things like the Da Vinci Code and a lot of this kind of postmodern thinking, people trying to give us the idea that there were just thousands and thousands and thousands of books and that it's ridiculous that someone could have conceived of or compiled just these 66 and that it must have been some kind of conspiracy and there must have been you know a group of bishops who met in the in this under this you know secrecy of darkness in the back room to to tailor the message to what they wanted it to be and i think we're going to find that that's not the case that kind of modern uh conspiracy theorists pretty much have have misinterpreted that or let us Stray, and we're going to find that it wasn't really that difficult. There really wasn't that much debate as to the books that are in our particular Bible. So let's start with the Old Testament. I feel like tonight is going to be a lot of information. Um, so I apologize if it kind of feels just like a complete information download, but um, we'll do our best. Okay. And, and hopefully, hopefully I won't bore you to death. So, let's think about the Old Testament. When we think about the writing of the Old Testament, um, we, we don't often think of it in the same way we do the New Testament, right? There's a lot of debate, a lot of discussion about the old, the New Testament canon. There's not really as much discussion about the Old Testament canon. And it's interesting because you think about the fact that the Old Testament was being written while the people were still alive. It was, it was a little bit of a different scenario. It was like currently happening. Obviously, there's some stuff that was going back in the past, but... A lot of the scripture, you know, Moses was with the people. The events that Moses was writing about and the law that he provided was what the people used at that time and then, you know, throughout history. And so a lot of the information that was being written was information that they were alive to receive. But it begins with the Old Testament. It begins with the the Ten Commandments. And if you think about it, the Ten Commandments would have been the first well, I don't know if we can say that. It may have been the first time that the words of God were written down. We don't know exactly at what point in Moses' life he began writing Genesis. And, you know, he was obviously recording information from the past because he was talking about creation and the fall and things like that. But when we get to Genesis, or we get to the book of Exodus, we actually see God speaking and Moses writing. Or in some cases, God with his own finger writing on the tablet, right? That was really the first time God was writing these words down. If you look at Exodus 31, Exodus 31, 18, when the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the testimony, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. So that really begins to form the canon of the Old Testament. Okay, 
in terms of the works given by God, which are captured for us. And it's pretty cool. And then Moses continued, obviously, to document the early history of Israel. God gives him the law throughout the book of Leviticus. And that law was what Israel was to follow. If you look at Deuteronomy 4.13, now you get to the book of Deuteronomy. Again, it's part of this Pentateuch. Deuteronomy is really Moses. It's kind of the second law. It's Moses recounting to the Israelites all the things that God has done for them up to this point. So you'll find a lot of redundancy as he recites and he kind of goes back through and he, and he takes them back through where they came from and what they've been doing and what God expects of them. And, and you, get to, you get to chapter 4. And like looking at verse 12, he says, Then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire, and you heard the sounds of words but saw no form. There was only a voice. He declared to you his covenant, the Ten Commandments, which he commanded you to follow, and then wrote them on two stone tablets. And the Lord directed me at that time to teach you the decrees and the laws you are to follow in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. Okay? Again, so that began the Bible. That's the very basis of those stone tablets. Moses says it again in Deuteronomy 10.4. So that really was the basis then. Then we know that he wrote additional works. So he's writing the canon really as, as in a contemporary way. Thirty-one, twenty-four. after Moses finished writing in a book the words of this law from beginning to end, he gave this command to the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant. Take the book of the law and place it inside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God. Okay. Moses' work was deemed authentic from the very beginning. We, when you read the New Testament... You think about the number of times that Jesus makes mention of the law or, or other people writing, whether it's in the book of Acts, making mentions of the law. And no one ever denied the fact that these books were inspired and they should be included in the canon. God commanded other people to write and to continue to add to this. You get to Joshua 24, 26. Back to verse 25, on that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people. And there at Shechem, he drew up for them decrees and laws. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak tree near the holy place of the Lord. Okay. 
Other people were commanded to continue to write. We're just going to flip through most of these. So let's look at 1 Samuel 10.25. And if you don't feel like flipping there, that's fine. I'll read them for us. Samuel explained to the people the regulations of the kingship. He wrote them down on a scroll, and he deposited it before the Lord. And then Samuel dismissed the people, each to his own home. And we find this to be a regular pattern. The Lord will say, you know, deliver this message, and then they'll often write it down. And knowing what we know about kingship, what was one of the things that Samuel what, what regulation, this is this is slightly tangent to what we're talking about. It kind of gets into what we're going to be talking about next. What was one of the things that a king was supposed to do when he became the king? Remember? Anybody remember? I don't know whether I could dig up the reference quick enough. but Anytime a, a new person became king, or the king, the throne transferred to the next generation, that king was to do what? He was to make a copy of the book of the law. So every time a new king came in, he was actually, one of the things he was supposed to do was take a book of the law and make his own personal copy of that scroll for him to study and to live by. And so just getting in, thinking about what we're going to be talking about next, about copying these manuscripts, that was expected. It was expected that there was going to be copies made and people having their own copies. Now, we know that the kings didn't do that, and that's one of the reasons that many of these kingdoms, you know, David being one of the only good kings and Solomon, most of them didn't follow through on that regulation, but that was something that they were to do. Okay. Um, many of the prophets were commanded to write down their messages. So if you look at Jeremiah 30, verse 2. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Write in a book all the words I have spoken to you. Okay? So we see the inspiration of God because these are the very words of God being given to Jeremiah. And then we see him saying, write them down. Okay? Capture these words. So the canon is continuing to be, to be built. See the same thing in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 2, but we won't turn to there. And then we'll see that that, that content really grew into the time of Esther. Now, when we reach the end... Let's say the book of Malachi is our last book and is the last book in the Old Testament, right? That's part of the, the prophets. 
from the time that Malachi into the time of Matthew, there's about 400 years of Jewish history. And we know that this history is captured by various historians. You have, you know, you have people still writing, you have people still capturing, but none of it was deemed to be worthy of being in the canon. None of it was deemed to be canonical. Um, some of the evidences for this is if you look back at Josephus, and these translations are a little rough because of the way they came out of they come out of uh, the Hebrew. But he basically said, from Artaxerxes to our own times, a complete history has been written, but has not de- been deemed worthy of equal credit to the earlier records because of the failure of the exact succession of the prophets. Israel understood this concept of a prophet, right? A person who speaks the words of God. And, and you have the people like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel known to be prophets and known to be writing, and the people accepted their writings as canonical. And then when those prophets kind of ceased to exist, the people recognized that the writings that were coming after were of, of historical value but weren't deemed to be the same level they realized that they weren't, um, they weren't inspired by God because they couldn't recognize the person as a prophet. And then in the Babylonian Talmud there, it says, After the latter prophets Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi had died, the Holy Spirit departed from Israel. Um, but they still availed themselves of this, this Hebrew phrase, I can't pronounce it, which means a voice from heaven. Okay. And so they, they just knew, really, that the Old Testament canon had come to a close because they didn't see the Holy Spirit or God working in the, in the lives of the, of the people there. Now, and so that, that really kind of brings that to a close. They recognize that that ended. Now, if you just look at what are some other evidences that the books we have in the Old Testament deserve to be there. Here's just a couple things. Uh, it's kind of neat to see when prophets talk about other prophets or books kind of reference other books. So these are a few things within the Old Testament where they, where they cross-reference one another. Um, if you look at Jeremiah 26.18, he actually quotes from Micah 3.12. Um, I happen to be there, so I'll just flip over to it. He says, Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah. He told all the people of Judah, this is what the Lord Almighty says, Zion will be plowed like a field, Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble, and the temple hill a mound overgrown with thickets. And so he's quoting from Micah 3.12. Um, there's a typo there that should be refers to. Ezekiel 38.17 refers to the prophecies of Isaiah. Um, I think it's interesting, Daniel 9, you can see that Daniel has been reading from the book of Jeremiah. Daniel 
Daniel's giving us prophecy on the end times. Chapter 9, it says, In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from Scripture, according to the word the Lord given Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. That's kind of cool, isn't it? Here you have Daniel reading from Jeremiah, connecting that with Scripture, and the fact that the words that he received were given to him from the Lord, tying in this concept of inspiration. Um, and not only was that all cool, but the fact that Daniel was actually reading it. <laughs> so Daniel was reading from Jeremiah. And then this last one here, Zechariah chapter 1, contains references to, to a number of passages. Okay, if you get to Zechariah chapter 1, verses 4. Four through six. I'm going to back it up to verse two. It says, The Lord was very angry with your forefathers. Therefore, tell the people, This is what the Lord Almighty says. That's a constant phrase you see throughout the Old Testament. Hear the words of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. I'm declaring the words of the Lord. Right When these prophets would speak, they announced themselves as bringing forth the words of the Lord. So he says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your forefathers to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. But they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your forefathers now? Are the, and the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my decrees which I commanded you, my servant, the prophets, overtake your forefathers? And so here, from here he quotes from a number of different places, including Isaiah 1.16 and 3.16. Okay, so that's just some places where... The Old Testament is making reference to itself, hoping to validate its credentials and, and as deserving to be in the canon. What about the New Testament? Can you think of with me, how would the New Testament provide evidence to canonical status of Old Testament books? Quoting. Quoting, Quoting them. Okay, perfect. Fulfilled prophecy. prophecy. What about in the life of Jesus? What 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 might Jesus have done or or said? Can you think of any instances or anything that might? show his level of belief and credibility in the Old Testament? I was reading a book on the Psalms, and it said that the Psalms was one of Jesus' most quoted books of the Bible. Like yep. He quoted it, like, all the time. He did. Right, so he, he quoted Psalms, and it's, 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 that's always an interesting thing, because... Um, 
it would be tempting. You, I could see where someone would want to disregard the book of Psalms. Well, it's not as important as the law, or it's not as important as the prophets. But then you see Jesus quoting from the Psalms so much, and a number of the Psalms being messianic, and that he fulfilled prophecies even proclaimed in the, the book of Psalms. And if you remember last week when we were talking about inspiration, we were looking at the book of Acts, and there were multiple instances in which the apostles said and quoted from the book of Psalms, and they said that the Holy Spirit speaking through the mouth of David wrote, right? And so we can even see in those instances the Psalms being regarded as inspired and, and, and uh, belonging in the canon. Anything else? Can you, think, can you think of anything? Jesus' temptation, he um, looks like quotes Deuteronomy quite Okay. Perfect, right? So Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament when he's being tempted by the devil and, and he's finding his rebuttals. And he quotes from the law. Book of Deuteronomy being a part of the law. One of my favorite passages is Luke twenty four, forty four. actually stepping back this is when Jesus Jesus has been resurrected and he's traveling on the road to Emmaus and he comes in contact with these two disciples with these two believers and they're walking along and he supernaturally uh, hides his appearance such that they didn't know that it was Jesus and he's talking to them about the events of the day and then in verse 25 he said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things, and then enter in, in his glory? Or enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scripture concerning himself. Okay? That's pretty cool. I'd love to have heard that sermon. And then you get down to verse 44. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So Jesus there mentions three groups. The law of Moses, that would have been the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The prophets being um, those last books, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, all those. And then he, he mentions the Psalms as well. back to Luke 11 Jesus is condemning the people 
He's pronouncing woes upon the Pharisees. And in the middle of his discussion, in fact, if we go back to verse 46, just to pick up some context, Jesus said, And you experts in the law, all right, these are the people who devoted their lives to studying the first five books of the Bible. Woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you because you built tombs for the prophets, and it was your forefathers who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your forefathers did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. So Abel being all the way back from Genesis chapter 4 to Zechariah, who was one of the last prophets to live and, and wrote the book Zechariah. So the New Testament quotes the Old Testament 250 times and makes over 900 allusions um, from all but six books. Okay, and so the New Testament lends a lot of credence to the Old Testament canon. Just thinking about various stories that the Old Testament that, of the Old Testament that appear in the New, and the way that Jesus uses the Old Testament, he teaches about Adam and Eve, he teaches about Abel talks about Noah and the flood, so those are all coming from the book of Genesis. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, again from the book of Genesis. Talks about destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. That would have happened back in the recorded in the book of Genesis. He talks often about Moses and his writings. He makes reference and talks about David, Elijah, the prophet Isaiah, Jonah and the great fish. He talks about Daniel, talks about Zechariah. Okay. all of which is documented in the canon of the Old Testament. Then Jesus and his followers, as we've seen, the Jewish leaders of the day, the Jewish people, accepted the Old, Old Testament canon without question. You don't, you don't see anybody respond to Jesus when he's teaching or any of the discussions that they're having that would suggest that they did not believe those to be Scripture, right? They were devoting their lives to that. But you did have, in, in about AD 70, there was a Jewish council of Jamnia. This was held shortly after the destruction, and they merely confirmed that the books that were already widely accepted as canonical. So this group of Jewish people got together and just rubber stamped it. Okay? Any questions or comments? I know that's a lot. It's almost like we should get up and do jumping jacks. It's just like information download. Pass around the candy, Matt. <laughs> Sugar up. <sighs> we need a break or anything? We're good? Okay? Okay. So that's the Old Testament. Let's look at the New Testament. 
So I mentioned these earlier, but these are things you might hear. You might have discussions with coworkers or family members. I might say, you know, the New Testament canon, in other words, the 27 books that we've accumulated into the New Testament, it was created by a conspiracy of powerful bishops who acted nastily and unfairly to suppress a bunch of equally noteworthy documents. That's kind of like the Da Vinci Code concept. There was some kind of an agenda, a power struggle, you know, and, and what they needed to, to fulfill their, you know, rise to power was to suppress certain books so that they could control the narrative. So that's a, that's a common misconception you'll hear. And others might say, well, you know what, the early Christians had no good reason for privileging certain documents the way they did. It was just, you know, shot in the dark. And we're going to see that those indeed are common misconceptions. One author, Greg Gilbert, I didn't bring it with me tonight, he's the one who wrote that little white book, Why Trust the Bible. It's a very good read. He says, the idea that there was a roiling, boiling sea of Gospels and other documents to choose from in the first two centuries of Christian history is simply untrue. That's not the picture that the modern conspiracy theorist would have you to believe. It says, the evidence shows that although the church debated the authority of a handful of New Testament books into the 4th century, Christians widely recognized the vast majority of what we know as our New Testament as authoritative no later than the end of the 2nd century. All right? And so they really, they really had a pretty good idea of what it was. So we're going to go through this. We're going to kind of march through this. We're going to look at the criteria that people use to establish it. Then we're going to look at views of some of the early church fathers as they kind of lend credence and then look at when it was all solidified as, as, uh, the, as the canon. And we talked about this, and you guys came up with most of this on your own. They had criteria. It wasn't a shot in the dark. It wasn't, you know, thumb in the wind, kind of feeling out. They, they had criteria, and it's pretty common sense criteria. The books must have had apostolic origin. If, if, if I'm going to believe this book to be authentic and inspired by God, I want it to be somebody who was connected with Jesus. And so the books of the Old Testament were written by the apostles. So either the 12 apostles or Paul, right? Paul was an apostle because he saw Jesus. Or someone who spent a lot of time with them. So, for example, Luke wrote the book of Luke, and he wrote the book of Acts, but we know he spent the majority of his life with Paul. And Mark wrote the book of Mark, and he was a servant of and helped the apostle Peter. And so those, those people had direct connection, spent a lot of time to, with an apostle, or it was an apostle themselves. Uh, the book must have been widely accepted by the early church, and the book must be consistent and compatible with the other books. So those were the criteria that they used. Can I ask? Yep. At what do you consider the early church? Like what century? Uh, let's say the first century. You know. Should be about a hundred. The first hundred years. You mean the widely accepted by? Are you directly referring to the second statement? I think it was a, maybe the first two centuries, and we'll call it the early church in the first two centuries.
Now, from what I understand, most of the discussion was not concerned with what to exclude, but it was really what to include. So it's not like they sat down and they put you know 10,000 books on the table and said, um, you know, all of these are in. It's like their, their circle started out really tight. It's like they, their criteria were really tight, and it's like we're gonna we're gonna guard these books pretty carefully. So should I bring this one in? You know, should I include this? Mm, I don't know. It's kind of a different mindset. They had very high standards. Um, it wasn't that they sat down with a thousand or ten thousand and said, um, "This one's pretty good, but let's let's put this aside for now and let's put this aside." The standards were very tight, and they were guarding those. And it was like, "Well, should we include this?" Okay, we'll bring it in. And so it really centered around, you know, it wasn't like the some of these gospels you've probably heard of, like the Gospel of Thomas or some of those. None of those were ever on the table as being actually part of the canon. Really, most of the books we have in our New Testament were accepted. Uh, most of the debate centered on whether to include books like Hebrews, Second, Second Peter, Second and Third John, Jude, and Revelation. Uh, much of the debate centered on whether or not those books should be be included, and and I don't necessarily know why they debated about some of these books. Hebrews, I understand, because we don't necessarily know who the author of Hebrews is, and so I think that was a lot of the concern. Um, I don't know about the other ones, like Second Peter, Second and Third John, whether they just denied or they were weren't sure whether Peter and John actually wrote them or what those what was about those particular books. So it was almost like, okay, we know that these other books in the New Testament are in, should we include these books? And that was really some of the debate. And so if we look at various people, various of our early church fathers, and, and what they wrote about, and what they said, it gives us a really good idea of what the mindset was at the time and what people were believing. And so you look at somebody like Clement of Rome. He's one of our early fathers. And Polycarp, both have lived, both lived during the time of the apostles. Okay, so they were trained. That was like the first generation of, of early church leaders. They were trained by the apostles themselves often refer to the New Testament books in their own letters, right? These guys wrote. It was a primary you know, means of communication, so they're writing. And then as Polycarp and Clement of Rome are writing, they're actually making reference to New Testament books. And so then we can see what books Clement and Polycarp and those people consider to be authoritative and canonical. In Justin Martyr's writing, he referred to the four Gospels, he referred to Paul's letters, and he and he referred to Revelation, and then he, he and when he was writing and quoting, he gave them equal authority as as the Old Testament scriptures that they had. Okay. The oldest known list of New Testament books is dated to the middle of the second century, so let's say 150 would be kind of the middle as the first time somebody wrote down a list and said, well, these are the books of the New Testament. And so, not all our current books are listed, and no book in our canon is, list, is excluded except the, the Wisdom of Solomon. That's a weird way for me to write that. No book not in our canon. 
is listed except there was <laughs> sorry for the poor use of grammar there. So we'll look at that in a little more detail on the slides ahead. Um, from AD 170 to 300, we point out the ones that are of most significance here. So Tertullian, he was, he was, Tertullian was the guy who coined the phrase Trinity. He was the church father who, who spent a good chunk of his life defining the concept of the Trinity and giving us the doctrine of the Trinity. In his writings, if you compile all of his writings together, he referred to all the New Testament books in his works except for James, 2nd and 3rd John, and 2nd Peter. Now that doesn't necessarily mean he didn't think they were canonical, but he never referenced them as, as a source when he was writing. Origen, another one of our early church fathers, listed all 27 books, but admitted that some had doubts with Hebrews, James, 2nd and 3rd John, Jude, and 2nd Peter, which is what we made mention to earlier. When Clement was writing, he acknowledged only four Gospels, okay, the four Gospels that we have today. And in his writings, he quotes from all New Testament books except Philemon, James, 2nd and 3rd John, and 2nd Peter. Cypriot recognized only four Gospels. He quotes from all New Testament books except some of the similar ones, Philemon, Hebrews, James, 2nd and 3rd John, Jude, and 2nd Peter. So who are all these people? I don't recognize these names. Have you ever studied church history? Yeah, I would highly encourage you to do that. It's very fascinating. I mean, there's a lot of audio books that you can get. Even on these, These were just men like Irenaeus, Tertullian, Origen, these would have been various guys. In this case, we're looking only from 170 to 300. They would have been known as the theologians of the day. Okay, so, you know, when you think about, you have the apostles were the authoritative word. Um, they were the church leaders. As generations come and generations go, various men rose up to lead the church. And... And you had one generation teaching the next. So the apostles, you know, taught people like um, uh, Clement of Rome, and those people became the lead pastors of the church. And then those people came and went. The next wave of men would step up. And so if you go back and you study church history, these are generally the people that are acknowledged as being most influential. Um, they were the ones doing the writing. They were the ones shepherding the people they were the ones guarding the truth and the doctrine and so as as heresy would crop up then these men would step up and say no that's not that's not right and then they would establish a doctrine so for example Tertullian there he he was a scholar uh, a pastor and during that time they were struggling with things like okay how do we how do we frame the deity of Christ, and how do we, how do we fit in the Holy Spirit? And, and there was a heresy that came up known as modalism, and somebody projected this concept of that, okay, Jesus is nothing more than God who's 
changed forms and he's just one person who changes appearance kind of like an actor might and that's when Tertullian stood up and said no that's not true and then he makes he basically captures the doctrine of the trinity okay and so these guys would have been the theolo theological powerhouses of their day so when we look back at their work we're basically looking to say okay these people were closer to Jesus than we are these people were were living very early on what was their view on scripture because what you know what did they as they were studying and learning and teaching and writing what were they using as the basis for their writing and what books did they did they frequently reference did they think there were 20 gospels or just the four did they think you know so we're kind of looking at their writings to see what their belief was on the canon of scripture if that makes sense so their names are weird. I guess these are not names we would typically use today. Irenaeus, Tertullian, Origen, Clement. These guys would have just been the theologians of the day. Were they elected leaders or no. appointed? They weren't even necessarily... I, I mean, I wouldn't say they were... They weren't elected as if they held an office. They didn't hold any kind of office. They were just brought in as either pastors of churches or some of them just spent their lives studying um, and, and were just recognized as being authoritative and, and therefore they would write and speak and people would listen. Would that be like now certain scientists have more credibility than others and down the years that would be what we would look at to, to learn Yes, yeah. So in the, the world of science that would be true. I mean, for us today, these would be like the John Pipers and John MacArthur's and the R.C. Sproul's and those people who have just built a reputation of being able to understand the words of God and to speak truth and and they would have just been leading the people. Yeah, there's some there's some very fascinating. I, I kind of got hooked on church history a number of years ago. I, I came across um, um, some different there's and there's all sorts of different podcasts and things that I, I'll plug into my car and listen as I'm driving along and and hear about what some of these you know these people how they were were, were countering heresy and trying to establish Christianity and the battles that they fought and the and the things that they went through and and a lot of them you know even up in this time were were persecuted for their faith and it was. It was a substantial battle that they that they fought. Scott, isn't it um, interesting too that these guys here are before 300, and you know what happened in 325. So, is that significant to you, or do you? Yeah, I mean, I I think it is, and you know, again, these are just people, and I don't want to put too much too much on them, but. The fact that as close as they are to the apostles and seeing what they believe to be authoritative, I think, gives us a lot of confidence. I think what I'm referring to okay. is 325 A.D. when Constantine mm -hmm. and the, basically the Roman Catholic Church started at that point. Right. These guys were before that, before... Right, and the debate, the debate normally centers on, in 325, Constantine puts together a council and tells them, you know, we need to kind of come up with some books. And that's where a lot of the conspiracy theorists will say, you know, these guys met in this room and, you know, 
gave us a Bible and we can't trust it and believe it. Right? Right. So we're so on the same I'm page. I'm wondering, is, that, is it significant that these church fathers mm-hmm. were before that? I think so, yeah. I mean, because we're basically tracing all the way back close to the very beginning what people viewed as authoritative. I feel like it kind of started falling apart after Constantine. Yeah. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. When you listen to church history, uh, there was a lot of political things going on in that 300 and the 400. And, um, it definitely didn't make things go better. <laughs> um, so we're talking now 300 years. Interesting, Eusebius, when he writes, he accepted all except for James, Second Peter, and Jude. And But if, when you read his writing, he admits that these were widely accepted among the churches. Okay, so the churches were recognizing these books as being authoritative. And then you get to Athanasius. He listed the New Testament exactly as we have it today. And everything was solidified in 329 AD. You had the Council of Carthage, where scholars gathered together to actually create that canon kind of once and for all. And that's where the books we have in our New Testament were, were finally solidified in that 397 Council of Carthage. Okay, so you're talking 400 years before a list was officially, once and for all, put together. But for most of those 400 years, the church had books that they accepted as being authoritative in that they were divinely inspired, right? Because that's the key. What they're trying to decide is, is this, is this book inspired by God? Is it divine product? And it really wasn't a debate as to what to include. It was more or less, a, you know, it wasn't, again, it wasn't like, well, should we take the Gospel of Thomas? You know, what about some of these other things? It was, no, these are our books. There's a couple on the fringe, but ultimately they were deemed to be authoritative as well and, and, and listed in our canon. Okay. I'm kind of curious about the Apocrypha. That's our next cop. That's our next one. Yeah. That, yeah, we'll talk about that. Any any questions on that? I know, again, that's like information overload. It was data dump right there. And, you know, I wouldn't expect anybody to remember all that. My biggest thing was just to help instill confidence in you guys that what we have is what we're supposed to have, right? I, I, I do believe, I think, I think Terry maybe even brought this up a couple weeks ago, if, if God wanted to reveal himself to us and he took the initiative to do that, and he inspired books, I believe he will also superintend history to, to make things happen so that we ultimately end up with a reliable copy of the Bible today. And so I think he works in the lives of these people and orchestrates the events to help everyone come together and, and, and give us the copy of Scripture he wants us to have. So these people go back to the actual knowing each other? 
Oh, yes, yeah. So some of the ones on this very first slide that I showed, um, some of these guys knew the apostles, too. So I'm trying to think which one it was. Polycarp may have been uh, a disciple of John. Don't quote me on that because I can't remember. But some of these guys were trained directly from the apostles. So they were like the apostles' disciples. And the, the, the apostles wrote to them, you know, and trained them to then lead their churches. So some of them had direct contact. And then there's just kind of that succession. And then some of them knew each other, uh, worked together. Of course, Justin Martyr was the one we get the word martyr. Justin Martyr was killed for his faith. We get the word martyr from his name. Um. Okay. Last couple minutes, we'll just touch on the Apocrypha. This is, a, this is an interesting discussion because there have been a lot of mixed feelings about this if, if you don't know, the Apocrypha are, are books that occur between the Testaments. So between the Old Testament and New Testament, there's a collection of books. Um, I think there's 14 or 15, depending on how they're accounted, which are called the Apocrypha. And there's been mixed, mixed opinions throughout history. Uh, so we'll just kind of look at those. Um, I'm just going to present a couple slides on this as it pertains to just various pieces of information. I think it's worth noting uh, that not once in the entire New Testament does anybody cite any statement from the books of the Apocrypha or any other writing as having divine authority. You know, when, when Jesus and the disciples quote, they quote from the Old Testament. Um, they actually don't quote from any other source, including any reference to the Apocrypha. I think that's just an interesting thing to note. When the Council of Jamnia, that would have been the council we alluded to that happened after the destruction of the temple, where those Jewish elders met to solidify the Old Testament canon, they did not include the, the, the Apocrypha. That would have been present, right? Because the Apocrypha would have been written sometime after Malachi and before Jesus was born. And, you know, people like Josephus and a lot of the historians that we've already looked at when they wrote, they recognized those books as, as not having the authority of a prophet as in some of the other Old Testament scripture. So it didn't, the, the Jews did not accept them as being a part of the Bible. Um, there's been divided opinion throughout church history, and so then some of the early church fathers were kind of going back and forth on whether to include the Apocrypha as part of Scripture. Um, from what I can read, the, 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 the majority of the earliest, earliest Christian evidence is against it, but it did gradually increase in its utilage up into the Reformation time, for, time frame. Uh, 
And then at the Council of Trent in 1546, the Roman Catholic Church declared it as a part of the canon. So you will find that in certain Bibles today. Okay, so they would include the Apocrypha and their scripture. I'm just going to mention four, four things that would suggest that they're not canonical, that they shouldn't be included. Some of these I've already mentioned. Um, from what I understand, and I've not read them, but they do not claim to have the same authority. So when you read through those, you won't hear phrases like you will commonly hear in the Old Testament, such as, hear the word of the Lord, or thus says the Lord, or those kind of things. Uh, as I've already mentioned, they were not regarded as God's word by the Jewish people. We would, we would infer from the New Testament that they were not considered to be scripture by Jesus or the other New Testament authors since they never quote them. And um, from what I, again, I have not read them, but I understand they do contain teachings which could be inconsistent with the rest of scripture. So our belief would be that the Apocrypha would not be included in the scripture. Now, that's not to say that there isn't something to be learned from them. I think we can learn that they do have value for helping us understand his history. So if you read them like a history book, they tell us a lot about what was happening to the Jews in those 400 years between the Testaments. Uh, there's some linguistic research and things like that that we can use them for, but we would not hold them to have the same level of authority as Old Testament books or New Testament books, the 66 books we have in Scripture. So. No, they were not, and and I don't I don't even know. Um, I don't even know who wrote them. To be honest with you, I'm not sure. The books probably identify the authors. I couldn't name all of them for you. Any other questions? And like I said, there's 14 or 15, depending on how you count them. I think there's one book that sometimes is counted together and one book that's sometimes given a first and second designation. I yes, have seven in my Catholic Bible. Do you? They're not referred to as the but they are part of the Old Testament. You have them as a, which ones do you have in there? The ones that are not in their Bible Tobit, Tobit, uh -huh. Judith, uh, Wisdom of Solomon. I've heard, okay. Refer to Sarah, Sarah, uh, Fortuna, Baruch, uh, First Maccabees, mm -hmm. and Second Maccabees. Okay. So if you like to read it, I So only seven? There's only. <laughs> <laughs> if you like to read it, I let you. <laughs> <laughs> There's only seven? Okay, so there must be other ones that aren't. Because there's also... Um, this is a, um, you know, a Catholic Okay. I was thinking there's... There are others, like first and second. Esther. Yeah, I think there's 14 or 15 all, all together. <coughs> Not Esther. There's, there's, it's like E-S-D-A, Esther. 
first and second, and a couple of the other ones. questions? I know that was a ton of information. I apologize for that. How likely is it that all of the disciples would have been literate? Like, would they, I just think of the fishermen, would they have written accounts? Or, I guess I always thought only, like, the scribes and Pharisees were literate. I guess Matthew's a tax collector. Does that make sense? I mean, John and Peter were both fishermen, and they both wrote. So maybe everyone did? I think so, yeah. I just assume like yeah. only like the elite knew how to read. I, I mean, it, it's 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 entirely possible that they could have dictated it to somebody, but I I assume that they wrote it with their own. Like Paul, Paul oftentimes would dictate it. He had someone who would scribe for him. Tychicus, Tychicus was his name, and so Paul would, you know, verbally do it, and he would write. Uh, I never got that same impression from. Like John and Peter. That's an interesting question. They did live in Greek, Greek society, so it was highly educated and full of thinking and philosophy of governments and cities and states and all that. All right. So I'm sure they had a pretty good educational system. 